Welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and often ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK, and with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Tim Dutteridge, consultant urologist at Southampton University NHS Trust and the Focal Therapy Clinic. Tim is a recognized innovator in advancing both the imaging-led diagnostic pathway for prostate cancer and minimally invasive treatments, including focal therapy. We're going to discuss how much of this innovation has been led by clinical trials and explore how these trials deliver new procedures and treatments to patients. Tim, welcome to On Focus, and thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Fabulous. So we're going to talk about clinical trials. And I think this phrase is something that most of our listeners, if not the entire world, knows a little bit more about because of COVID. And we keep hearing about trials for treatments and therapies and vaccines. So it's made all of us acutely aware of their importance. And therefore, I thought it was a good time to tap into this and talk about how clinical trials have led to some of the big advancements in prostate cancer diagnostics and treatments like focal therapy. Now, since you've been involved in many of these, uh, I thought it'd be great if you could start off by telling us about them. And most importantly, just start with some definitions. So for example, what is a RCT or the randomized control trial? Yeah, so a randomized control trial is really the goal of comparative effectiveness when we're trying to tell uh, a patient, you know, which is better, treatment A or treatment B. And the reason that we have to have a randomized control trial is that all sorts of different other study designs that we use, where well, they're usually much easier to conduct than a randomized control trial, they're subject to bias and confounding. And that basically means that the patient may report things differently. The doctors may observe things differently. We may subconsciously or, or consciously be seeking a certain outcome from a study that leads to the data sort of tending to give us the answer that we want to hear. And that's just partly human nature, both you know, the optimism of uh, patients and doctors wanting to see new things work. But of course, there are lots of examples where in the past things we thought worked and we thought that the data was telling us that they worked when you actually conduct the study really well and to this very high standard called a randomized control trial that actually some of the things that you thought you believed to work actually turn out to be just as good as the sugar, the sugar pill. You know, the reason I refer to the sugar pill, which is otherwise known as the placebo, mm. is that um, most of these, this study design came through pharmaceutical industry. And actually what we found as surgeons is trying to incorporate this very challenging study design into surgical practice is, is really, I think, probably harder than it is to, to do when you're testing a, a medication, mm -hmm. which you can design to look exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Whereas anyone having an operation, for instance, through an incision or having keyhole surgery, you know, it's very obvious to the surgeon and the patient mm -hmm. that there's a big difference there. Okay. But really, we all want to be able to do randomized control trials so we can tell patients what is better. And there's one other thing to say, a, a, a systematic review is uh, something that we can conduct when we've got multiple randomized control trials. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what, again, you find is that you run the same sort of trial multiple times in different locations around the world is that you get subtly different answers sometimes. And a systematic review is a, a good way of trying to bring all that data together and give one final answer uh, to that question. Okay, I'm actually going to come to that in a, little, in a few minutes because um, there is a review that I, I want to chat with you about. But before I do that, you, I mean, you mentioned about bias. So, I mean, does the source of funding influence the process and the outcomes? Is that 
sometimes a source of bias. Well, it can do. And that's why it's important when you've got uh, commercially funded studies that there is a, a degree of separation from the, the company that's funding it and that the, the people conducting the study. And the more separation, the better. But it's understandable that uh, commercial trials are there to answer commercially valuable questions mm -hmm. and so often the study design this is particularly so in the study of drugs the study design will be very much focused around the, the funders objectives but they do have independent data monitoring committees safety monitoring committees and other uh, structural things within the study that mean that people can uh, hopefully regard the outcomes from those studies as being valid uh, but it's not uncommon for a commercially sponsored trial to shortly be followed, you know, once something has become established by academic funded studies uh, to really hone down the questions. But often with surgical studies, there's not often the opportunity to repeat randomized control trials because the moment in time where people have something called clinical equipoise, and that's basically both the surgeon and the doctor believing that either choice in the trial could be equally good. Mm -hmm. you know, with surgery, once you've got a really bit, bit of solid data that shows one operation or no operation or whatever is better than the alternative, then it's very hard to look a patient in the eye and say, we're going to put you in a randomized study when somebody down the road might be re regarding that new intervention as the standard. Mm -hmm. now. And, and so it's very important with surgery that when something innovative comes along, that at the earliest time point possible, a randomized control trial is undertaken because if you wait too long, you may miss the opportunity to do that randomized control trial simply because neither the surgeons nor the patients will kind of go ahead with it, even though they might say scientifically it's needed. It might be that the funders, the healthcare funders, really want to know if this is a good intervention or not. If you get to a certain point in time where something becomes the normal, it's very hard then to turn around and say, we're not going to do this unless you're randomized between either no treatment and an operation or treatment A versus treatment B. Mm. Um, so I think the timing of randomized control trials is very important. Oh, that's interesting. So then how would they influence clinical practice? I mean, what, what do you see in a sort of a, a pathway or, or is there a uniform pathway? Does it depend on the health system? Does it depend on what the trial is actually in investigating? And there is a sort of pathway that's uh, well recognized in the pharmaceutical industry. And, and so, to, you know, to a certain extent, that is mirrored in surgical practice. But effectively, you, you first of all have to have a, an intervention where you've got a sort of theoretical basis for that intervention. And one of the earliest things that you must do is assess the safety of the treatment and to see that there's some early sign of treatment effect. Obviously, you can do a safety report of an operation or something like that and make sure that people are not having too many side effects. So the monitoring of side effects is one of the, the earliest um, parts of the, the, the research. Phase one is, is the typical name given in, in the drug study where you're establishing the dose of the drug. Mm -hmm. So that's perhaps not a good analogy for surgical studies. But in phase two studies, you're there really with a group of patients looking at the side effect profile uh, and at the same time collecting some data on the treatment effects. And that's quite easy, for instance, uh, when you've got something where you can monitor a scan or you can monitor a blood test that, you know, for instance, looking at cancer outcomes uh, uh, with PSA testing is quite handy for, for most prostate studies. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, when we're looking at ablation, we're looking at the combination of uh, PSA and of imaging and of biopsy results. And so you, you would sort of uh, start off by looking at uh, what's the side effect of that intervention, then start looking at some cancer outcomes in terms of maybe a one-year scan and biopsy and PSA result. And does that indicate the cancer successfully treated? 
And then the next level from that really is more longer term cohort data. So you're taking as large a group of patients as you can mm-hmm. who have met certain study entry criteria and, and you'll just you know monitor their outcomes at set time points. Mm. And at, at this point, we've got two types of study. You've got the formal research study where everything is carefully uh, uh, funded to be uh, you know, checked at certain time intervals and everything is done by a very rigid set of rules. But then you've got a slightly less onerous form of study which can be done without some of that research framework, which is called a registry study. And that's where all the cases will be perhaps undertaken according to local practice, but then uploaded onto a study registry, which can then be scrutinized for multiple centers. And so, for instance, in the UK, for HIFU, the High Intensity Focus Ultrasound, we have had the INDEX study, which has been organized through UCL and Imperial uh, Mm -hmm. more recently. And the INDEX study has also been complemented by the UK Heat registry, uh, which is for sort of non-study patients. And that's provided us with much of the UK's uh, really good uh, data collection on focal ablation with uh, HIFU. Mm. But we're now moving on to a new phase where we're moving away from cohort studies to the randomized control trial. And we're running the Kronos A and B here in Southampton, which is again organized by Imperial. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this is a randomized control trial with uh, an interesting design because uh, the objective in Kronos A, the main objective is to run a randomized control trial between uh, the standard whole gland radical treatments and focal therapy. And here mm. we're, al- we're allowing whatever whole gland treatment, surgery or radiotherapy that you choose to have, and also either form of uh, commonly used focal treatment. So that's high or cryotherapy. Mm. And, mm. and that really is an, the most important thing for the UK to be focusing on at the moment within the focal therapy community is to try and see if we can recruit men to this study. And basically that study requires me, and this is exactly how I feel, to, to look at a patient in the eye and uh, someone who's got disease just on one side of the prostate that's important disease and say to them, I don't know what's best for you to have focal therapy with uh, hemiablation of the prostate with HIFU, for instance, Mm -hmm. or to have nerve sparing radical prostatectomy. Because although these treatments are both quite distinctly different, Mm -hmm. the the side effect profile of HIFU will be lower, but we have an uncertainty about the long-term comparative effectiveness, which is Mm -hmm. why we're doing the study. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, surgery, which may well have been demonstrated to have these long-term outcomes that we can predict, it's not like you get a guarantee of no repeat treatment. It's just that we know at 10 and 15 years what the likelihood is of you having to have repeat treatment. Whereas we don't know the likelihood of repeated treatment for HIFU yet. But the side effect profile of surgery is, is that much more challenging for patients. You know, uh, incontinence uh, happens very frequently, although it recovers, thankfully, in most patients. Uh, erectile dysfunction is also a significant issue for many patients. Mm-hmm. So we know that those side effects there. And the question is, is that cost worth paying? And is there a difference in the comparative success of getting rid of the cancer that sort of justifies those additional side effects? And, mm-hmm. and we don't know the answer to that question. So, so I can look a patient directly in the eye and say, look, I do both of these treatments. I am an advocate of both. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting on the fence here. And Yes, you could choose. You might look at this situation and say, well, you, you obviously prefer one over the other. Mm-hmm. But scientifically, the very mo- most robust reaction to this situation is to say, I don't know what's best. We're going to let the randomization take care of the decision making and in the process contribute to a study where eventually we will know 
which is the best of these treatments. That's interesting. Now, so, so the question, the, its main question of Kronos is what? What is the main investigation then? The main objective is to establish the failure-free survival, the comparative you know, success mm-hmm. in getting to a 10-year time point free of any kind of disease uh, progression and failure you know, in the sense of having to have surgery or radiotherapy as a salvage treatment, mm-hmm. having hormone therapy because the disease is metastasized, measuring metastases, dying of prostate cancer. You know, all of these things count as failures within mm-hmm. the study. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're really looking that the, the primary endpoint is to study that and, and see which is the best treatment. And of course, we will be studying the side effect profiles yeah. of these treatments as well. But the, the next part of Kronos is interesting because when you pose that uh, question to patients and you say, look, I have an equipoise position on this, a substantial number of men will come back to you and say, well, I don't. I favor folk call. About mm-hmm. two thirds say that to me. Mm-hmm. And one third say I favor surgery. That's of the people who have a decision, a preference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say at the moment, I haven't really got a good feel for it, but I'd say at least half of men have a preference um, and don't want to be randomized. And so it is quite challenging to recruit to these randomized control trials because even though the doctors say to them, we don't know which is best, patients will look at the two choices and they find it difficult because it's not like looking at two different tablets that look the same. Looking at a pathway of HIFU and looking at a pathway of surgery, mm-hmm. they look so different. It's very hard not to have a preference. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm finding. So even in the hands of committed researchers, uh, it's, it's a challenge to successfully deliver this kind of recruitment. Yeah, that's and interesting. So, that, so that's why we've got the, the second arm of the study, which is called Kronos B. In Kronos B, it accepts that the patient has made a, a, a preference towards treatment with focal ablation. And we're, we've got another question we want to ask, which is, can we uh, improve the outcome of uh, ablation with the use of drugs as uh, sort of what we call neoadjuvant therapies, so that's drugs given before the treatment. Mm-hmm. And this is something that mirrors the practice in radiotherapy where men are given hormonal therapy. So we're using one of the same drugs, bicalutamide, but also using finasteride as another drug for uh, neoadjuvant therapy. So that, that study is now pretty much fully recruited. And we will find out in the next few years whether there's evidence that using drugs like that before HIFU can actually improve the outcome. And that would be very exciting. What do those drugs do? I mean, you mentioned neoadjuvant, but could you explain what that means? These drugs are both focused at shrinking the size of the prostate before treatment. And also there's an anti-cancer effect of bicalutamide. So that that may in itself be helpful. Interesting. So you said that the Kronos trials are fully recruited or are only partially recruited? The Kronos B study is very nearly fully recruited, but then we will be focusing on Kronos A. And so, in effect, the main research objective will be to try and encourage men to accept this uh, clinical equipoise and allow themselves to be randomized between surgery and ablation. Mm. Well, I'll make sure that we put a link on the um, website. Of, yeah, so the I, they do have a website, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just a final question about back to the sort of bigger realm of, of studies overall. There was some discussion earlier, uh, well, the end of last year, beginning of this year, on a review of various published information about focal therapy. And this was something through the um, European Urology Oncology Group. And they were quite critical of focal therapy outcomes. Um, and this was having reviewed evidence gained, not only through RCTs, but um, 
other bits of research. And I just wanted to ask you what you thought about how you would address that, because obviously a lot of these studies might have various biases, or as you say, they don't have the time sort of horizons because focal therapy is relatively new that, that other procedures or other approaches have. So what would you say to somebody who, who said, well, I, I read this in, in this particular journal and, and what do you think about it? So I think it's important to say that a, a systematic review is only really helpful when you've got a lot of randomized controlled data. Okay. And in their review, they've done an extensive search, but I could have told you straight away that there's only one completed randomized control trial. And so that could have saved them a lot of time. And they found three other retrospective studies that were uh, of value. In fact, uh, we've just published another study which would have been important in, uh, in this systematic review, which hasn't been included, but I can mention that as well. But the main re randomized control trial that they uh, would have included in their analysis was uh, one conducted at University College London. It was a, actually a multi-center European study led by Mark Emberton. Mm -hmm. And that study was looking at a vascular photodynamic therapy uh, treatment where effectively around, and these were mainly basically they were low-grade lesions, so Gleason 6 or grade group 1 lesions. Mm -hmm. And using this treatment, there were some clear advantages uh, over active surveillance, uh, which was the standard of care for low-grade disease. Mm -hmm. So although I'm not sure particularly that this study has a big influence on clinical practice because PDT is not in widespread use, first of all, uh, and second of all, I think although there were some improvement measures seen against active surveillance, I think uh, obviously with active surveillance, um, you know, we do have ways of monitoring patients and allowing a smaller group of patients to receive treatment when they show signs of progression. And, and I think that is perhaps more the accepted strategy in the UK. But it was importantly the first study to show that focal therapy can have a positive influence on the management of uh, men with prostate cancer, and as a stepping stone to the you know the current larger uh, randomised controlled trial that we plan to conduct with the Chronos A, it sets out important principles. Mm -hmm. And and I think when we study as we are in Chronos A, more clinically significant disease, where the treatment effect will be much more profound, uh, and actually we're comparing to the the alternative of surgery where the side mm -hmm. effects are so much more significant. I think we're we're really studying a more important health problem. Mm. than was studied in that, in that uh, TUCAD study. So I think that, you know, that was the main study they looked at. All of the other studies that they've kind of summarized would have been low kind of quality studies from an evidence hierarchy point of view. Okay. And so it's not, at all, it's not at all surprising, therefore, that they will call for further research. In fact, you know, that was, that's a fairly obvious statement when you're looking yeah, at a yeah. field which is only developing. So, so we are in the process of gathering that evidence. Mm -hmm. But the best evidence, I think, which was missed out in this study, unfortunately, has just been published by the Imperial Group and the, the sort of UK Focal Users Group, which I'm a part of, mm -hmm. is uh, this propensity score matching study, which is basically taking the UK's Focal HIFU registry data and comparing it to similar men who had surgery. And they've done a statistical method to try and match up these cases so that um, we effectively try, instead of trying to compare apples and oranges that we're as closely as possible matching apples with apples and that that methodology is not anywhere near as good as a randomized control trial but you know it comes as as close as you can get 
in my opinion, to that kind of ideal study methodology. Mm-hmm. And so this, this has literally just been published in the last uh, few days, I think, this study and uh, uh, it's with prostate cancer and prostatic diseases. And hopefully you can share a link to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this studied, you know, about 500 focal therapy men. So it's a good size group. Uh, 420 of those men had high intensity focus ultrasound and they, they did a matching and eventually ended up with a group who matched up with uh, 246 radical prostatectomy patients. So ended up with 246 of each in the final analysis. Mm-hmm. And they found that over the course of eight years, the patients had cancer outcomes that were similar between focal therapy and radical prostatectomy. And I think that this is really important data because uh, it, you know, notwithstanding the fact it's not a randomized controlled trial, it's the biggest and most statistically well-powered uh, answer to that question. And mm-hmm. I think we can make a simple statement to men, uh, which is in the medium term, it seems probable that the risk of you, you know, if, if you meet the, the sort of entry criteria, which uh, were part of this um, study group's entry for HIFU, uh, if you've got those criteria in your disease and you were to go through HIFU, you can be reasonably confident of an equivalent outcome to surgery at around eight years. Mm. And, you know, it's not as robust a, 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 a kind of response as you get from a randomized control trial, mm-hmm. but it's, it's as, as good as we've got at the moment. Indeed. And I think that, give, that gives men an idea about, you know, what they can expect. And, and of course, you, the, you know, reduced side effects, which of course is. But yes. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll put a link on that um, and on, on the transcript as well. And I mean, just another note of observation, you know, it's, it's always incredible to hear how much of this is actually being done here in the UK. I mean, it really is sort of a, a hub, if not an epicenter of this kind of work. Yeah. And people like you are really driving us forward. So, so, so thanks for that. And, and thanks very much for joining me today. I think this is a really, really important topic and I'm really look forward to seeing the publication of the study you've just talked about. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. A transcript of this interview is available on our website, along with several links to the trials discussed. Visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk, where you can learn about alternative treatments for prostate cancer, how we approach patient care at the Focal Therapy Clinic, and access additional interviews with both patients and clinicians about their experiences. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>